Here's the key. I want to to make a recommendation to you. I don't know if this, this doesn't count as investment advice, but it's advice about how to invest. Do not use the, an investment advisor who is part of the same company that has custody of your money. I'll say that again. Do not use an investment advisor who is part of the same company that has custody of your money. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. And unlike last week, we are back in sync. Wait a minute. That's, that's like a boy band, right? Mm-hmm. But they're all grown up now. We're back in the sync. Yeah, so it's a, it's a man band. I don't know if I... It's a band. There you go. Um, or we're in a sinkhole. Yes, we may be in a sinkhole. This is the personal wealth coach where we will make bad references to old bands and talk about the economy. To begin and with... Oh, what's that? And sinkholes. And sinkholes. Yes. Right. Uh, they may all be in the same place. Mm-hmm. It may all be one analogy that we are thoroughly mixing together uh, to make a metaphor. Yes. Or a mixed metaphor. Blended even. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will be talking about the economy together, but before to get t- together, but before we do, we must give you some disclosures. They are vitally important. They are so important that they are required by the government. So listen carefully. Not only is this a radio program. Wait a minute. It, that's all it is. It's really a radio program. No, it's or, also it's also going out over the internet. Unless it's on the internet, and that's all it is. If it's doing that, unless it's on a podcast as a recording that you download okay so all of those things are true this is called the personal wealth coach and the government didn't say that we had to say all that stuff up to here but the name of the firm that employs the two people talking here is also called the personal wealth coach it's not coincidental we started the radio program way before the firm took on the name the personal wealth coach and This radio program has been that a very, very long time. The firm is registered to give investment advice, registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission to give investment advice. That's fiduciary advice on portfolio management and investments and business management and trust and all that good stuff. But just because the firm is registered to do that doesn't mean we can do it on the air. In fact, it's explicit that we can't. So what are we doing? Why are we talking to you if we can't do the thing that is the thing that we do? Because we're educating. We can't give advice on the air because there's privacy rules. There's don't give advice unless you know the person you're advising. I could tell you that uh, my glasses are going to mean just from my own experience, my glasses make me see amazing. So you should try them too. So the whole one size fits all thing doesn't really work when it comes to investments. Um, Also, privacy. Now, Throw another thing in here. Just because the firm's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that they particularly like us or dislike us. There's no implied favoritism or anointment or um, any of the other words that might say that endorsement or great faith or any of that stuff. They're a regulatory authority at the government. They don't do that. I mean, in some countries they do, but ours... We'd pay them to just be grouchy. That's what we want in the 
investment world. We want grouchy regulators to keep people honest. So there are regulators and they wanted to make sure that we let you know, one, that they regulate us and two, that they don't prefer us. So uh, it's kind of like if you had every time you spoke to someone, you had to introduce your father and then tell the world, this is my father. And um, uh, he doesn't necessarily uh, endorse anything that I'm saying, but my father is uh, the one you should report to in the event that I say something funny. But it's reasonable when it comes to things that are purely concept, blue sky, as it were. Um, Okay. So Next up, we don't pay for this program. I know that's very weird because we're a couple of decades into a program that started at a time that most Saturday mornings were not paid commercial programming. That has shifted completely over those years, but we're still doing this. We're also not getting paid to do it. We're not paying. We're not getting paid. Uh, We buy advertisements on the uh, studio, KTM. Uh, and we use those advertisements to tell when this radio program is. So there you go. Uh, there is no quid pro quo, Senator. Uh, why do we tell you that? Because again, the SEC said it's probably best practice to let people know that you advertise on the station. And we said, well, we're advertising for the program. And they said, well, the more they know, the better. We agree with that. So you guys uh, know we're not paying for the program. They're not paying us. That's really, really ludicrous from the perspective of economists that talk about productivity, dollars earned, how fast your wages are growing, that we've gone more than, well, I guess, almost two and a half decades without getting paid. That is like intentionally unemployed. Weird. Um, we get paid in our normal business, just not for doing the radio. And you've got a disclosure as well, no, but you I, also have something I, else. You're talking about something that's irrational. I'm a member of the Salado Planning and Zoning Commission. You and sit, I don't get paid. You, you're a commissioner? Uh-huh, and I don't get paid for that. And the oh. members of the aldermen, the board of aldermen. Can I use my Batman voice when I talk to you and refer to you can as Commissioner what? McClure? I'll you use can, my... If you my, want to. Commissioner McClure, can you tell us um, the next disclosure, please? <laughs> Couldn't the help information it. we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy of said information or unsaid information or the completeness of right. unsaid information right yes or incompleteness or, or or the incompleteness or completeness of said information yes the known knowns and the known unknowns but then there's the right. unknown unknowns right those are big so we have wrapped up our disclosures with those last few that just cover the entirety of all things i think we also have violated every rule of a radio program by spending 10 minutes talking about disclosures well we spent 10 minutes talking about inanities and now we're going to spend the next part the greater part of two hours talking about the economy which Mm -hmm. is so well um inquisitor john our most faithful questioner he questions us on everything uh his question is what is negative carry uh and it's a good question he's got a a picture of an article from the Wall Street Journal, yields give Fed room to sit tight. I don't know if that's making a statement about how much room the Fed has to sit in. Are they calling the Fed fat here? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But the article is there. And the question comes from a chunk of the article uh, where it says, with yields on overnight rates above yields on longer dated treasury securities since 
late last year. Investors pay more to own a longer-dated security than they earn while holding it, a condition called negative carry. He says, what's negative carry? Because that paragraph didn't do a very uh, brilliant job of defining that. Looks like somebody said, I'll just throw some words at it and go on. What is negative carry? Easiest way to think about this, and it's still not easy, is I'll give you a direct uh, statement, a direct comparison. Remember back when the banks were failing in the early part of 2023, there were two banks that went and died in in their their dying breath caused panics and the Federal Reserve had to rush and throw money at the problem and people went, banks are bad for a while after that. Why were they bad? Well, they were bad because they had a bunch of debt that they had loaned to the government who will pay it back. Well, how's that bad? Well, they loaned it out for a long time, like 30 years, 20 to 30 years, which means it's going to be a long time before the government pays that back. They'll just pay interest on it. And interest rates were going up. And that meant that those loans weren't as valuable if you want to sell them to someone else. Because why would you want to buy a 3% interest rate when you could buy a 5% interest rate? That would be silly. I don't want to buy that thing. I'll pay you less for it. Well, that caused the values of those things to go down. Banks failed. The terror was out. How did the Fed fix it? The Fed stepped forward and said, I'm going to give you guys a loan. I'm going to let you use the entire maturity value, what it's going to be worth at the end of of the loan, of all those government loans, because we know the government's going to pay them back. So if it's a $10,000 bond, I will give you a $10,000 loan right now. Those bonds are paying you 3%, but I'm going to charge you 4% on this loan. In some cases, I'm going to charge you 5% on this loan. That means that they're earning money on those bonds. 3% coming in. Woohoo! But they have to pay 5% on the loan that they have to hold that bond for liquidity. That's called negative carry. They're paying more to own the bond than the bond is paying them. And seeing as banks are one of the major investors in long-term treasuries, that article talking about investors pay more to own a longer dated security than they earn while holding it. That's a very direct representation of what that person was trying to say. There's a lot of ways of doing negative carry though. I think I'm that was you want to add to that? Well, there's a more there's another way that people, individuals get into negative carry. If you purchase a bond fund for example or you purchase uh, a bond for that matter. Right. And you and by the way if you purchase a bond fund uh, you should look at its portfolio and see something very, very important. And that is what is the average price per bond. And while back we were, when interest rates were low, people were con- routinely buying bonds priced at 108, 107, 105. What does a, that mean? A normal price is at 100, which means mm-hmm. that somebody so, was, they were, they were paying eight, eight extra on that price. In other words, they were paying uh, anywhere from a 5 to 8% premium on the bond, which meant as it approached maturity, the bond is going to lose that premium value. So it's not the government's if, not going to pay back 108% at the end. It's going to pay back 100%. Right. So if you paid $1,000 for a bond and they pay you back 1000 that would be a new issue. But if you paid $1,080 for the bond, the government's still only going to pay you back 1000 Now, there may be high interest on that bond, 
But the issue is it was entirely possible, and people did commonly, uh, when interest rates are really, really low, get sold bonds that had a negative carry. They saw the income coming in, and they thought that's really good. But what they didn't realize is the principal was decaying on the bond faster than the income they had coming in. Yeah. And they, it, it takes a little bit of computation to do that, but that was a very popular thing for brokerage firms to do and still is yeah. a popular thing for brokerage firms to do. Because what happens is major uh, institutional bondholders have these bonds that have negative carry and they want to get rid of them. So they send, they, they call the brokerage house or they don't they discuss it. They, call, they go to a brokerage house and said, we want to sell these bonds and no professional in their right mind would buy them. We'll put them so in a bond fund. We need, we need to get <laughs> some of the public to buy them by telling them that they have a great yield, uh, a great coupon yield. See, coupon yield is, is if you paid $1,000 for it. So they have this massive, beautiful coupon yield, and they won't realize they're losing money on it, and we'll all make money except them. And that is routinely done at brokerage houses. That's just the way they do business. So everybody makes money except the investor. You know, You know the definition of a broker, right? Somebody Stock who broker. can make you broker? No, somebody who invests your money until it's all gone. Oh, well, I thought of it the other way around. You know how you make a small fortune in the market? Yes. You start, you start with, with a large, large one. one. Right. right. So those are normal brokerage firm kind of quotes of <laughs> why you should be doing due diligence on the people that are making money on your transactions. Always. Always. Mm -hmm. Always. I don't care if you're buying a car. You should you should be looking to say, all right, well, the the car salesperson hasn't seen a lot of customers since I've been here, but they're driving a Rolls Royce. This isn't a Rolls Royce dealership. They may be charging a higher commission than other places. So knowing that could inform where you're buying. You might be able to get a better price for whatever car you're trying to buy than the place where the salesperson who doesn't sell a lot is driving a Rolls Royce. Little clues like that. Um, we have another question from John. I think we covered negative carry quite well. She is just down. I mean, she reminds me of Eeyore, this carry who's always negative. Um, what is a funding currency? Yes. You want to, you want to cover that one? You want to start the question and all the rest? Well, the yen has been, wait, and it's interesting that, you, that we got the question about negative carry. Uh-huh. What? You wave your hand. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, you got to tell them what the question is before you start talking okay, about well, the currency. What is a funding currency, and what are the currencies besides the end are used for this purpose globally? Where where did he get that? That's why I'm where I'm trying to go. Oh, he got it from the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, because it's a kind of a out of the blue. Most people have no idea where that question. What is funding currency, and what what what? Well, it's it comes from an article that he thankfully sent us the headline for: "Yield Curve Control Joins the Living Dead." Um, which is a bit artful on their case. In their case, um, the yen, the the central bank, the Japanese central bank, has very carefully controlled their interest rates for decades. I mean, when I say controlled their interest rates, it is under tight, rigorous control, so that the ten-year, uh, their their ten-year treasury, their ten-year government bond. All right, see, I guess it would be a note. Um, pays one percent. Always pays one percent. Consistently pays one percent. Now, during this entire time period, the Japanese economy has been in mild deflation. It just stays in mild deflation, so that the value of the currency is dropping consistently over a long period of time. And we could go on an entire radio program explaining why they thought that was appropriate. 
it, they, stability is the most important thing there. And mild deflation creates stability. Uh, it doesn't in other circumstances and in other cultures, but it does in theirs. It means that there's banks for what, what's basically happened is a lot of banks have been setting out there on non-performing loans. And if they were ever recognized as non-performing loans, the banks would go under and the and a lot of people would lose face and a lot of people might commit seppuku and kill themselves. And it would cause instability in society. So the Japanese have kept shell companies, zombie companies and zombie banks going for many, many years through mild deflation. Uh, mild deflation means that the longer you hold a dollar, or not our yen in this case, the longer you hold a yen, the more value it accrues. Just just by having yen in your pocket or in your wallet or in your bed or in your bank or whatever, there, it very gradually rises in value. The, the other side of that, you have the, the zombie companies. You also have a shrinking demographic. There are fewer people right. in Japan and the population is shrinking. So if you so, continue to grow the money supply and you have fewer people, you get faster inflation. They didn't right. want that. So they were controlling that very carefully. So this, the result of that is an extremely stable currency, partially because of the culture of Japan and partially because of the decisions that were made, uh, the strategic decisions made at the Bank of Japan. So if, if you wanted to do something with your money and it was going to be parked for a while, the equivalent of being an escrow because you were about to do something else with it, and you'd agreed to purchase something at a certain price, you would typically, you, you might want to, if, if you're going to pay $6 billion for some project in Indonesia or something, instead of pricing it in dollars, you'd price it in yen. And you would deposit as escrow, let's say, $3 billion in a bank in Japan uh, where they don't let banks go under so there's no risk on your money. And the longer you had it there, the more valuable the money would get. And that would keep everybody happy. And it's called that's called the carry trade. Uh, so you didn't have to worry about currency fluctuations. I, I personally know a guy who uh, out in West Texas who had worked with a consortium of other ranchers and got the United States government to declare uh, mesquite an invasive species. And because it's an invasive species, they could take dead mesquite trees, cut them into pellets and sell them to power producers, electric power producers in Europe. And the Europeans got carbon credits for burning invasive species. The, the problem with that uh, is that mesquite is not an invasive species well, in well, West Texas. It was declared by the United <laughs> States government to be an invasive species. They did a lot of lobbying to do that. Yeah, and, and, and here, it was a here's good deal. A, and they finally got up a ship. Go ahead. I, I'm I'm gonna, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going to throw this in there that mesquite only grows in the central part of North America, central southern part of North America, anywhere in the world. And Europeans pay huge premiums for the exotic mesquite wood. And so having said that, it's an invasive species, according to the government. So go ahead. It's, it's quite humorous. Well, anyway, they finally got all the certifications, all the import documentation and everything. So they could send a shipload of pellets made out of mesquite trees, which they have an abundance of in southwest Texas yes. and little else. Um, they have they have limestone cactus and um, mesquite trees. And so it arrived. But the problem was that the currency fluctuation, the euro dropped like a rock on the way over there. And so it violated their contract. So they ultimately wound up with a ship full of mesquite pellets sitting in a port in Europe that couldn't unload, which 
basically bankrupted them. So this is why if you, the, the fluctuation of the dollar while this deal was being negotiated and, and, and consummated and done broke them. And the dollar does fluctuate a lot. It goes up, it goes down. As compared uh, to other nations. going up a lot. Right. And when it goes up, the euro goes down. And since they were being paid in euros versus dollars, in essence, they hit the point where they were going to lose money hand over fist on the pellets. It, it really was an awkward situation. Now, had they done all this in yen, they wouldn't have suffered through that. First they do is you convert the money, all the money into yen. You put it in, a, in the bank in, in Japan and get 1% interest on it. And, well, you may, you may not even get 1% interest on it. You may get no percent interest in the short term. And that way it's very stable. And that's basically what the carry trade is. And that's what the funding that John was asking about. The funding or, currency. Or the, what is a funding, called a funding currency. currency? Is there another currency in the world that's used as a funding currency? Oddly enough, mainly it's the dollar. Yeah. But the dollar is nowhere near as stable as is the yen. When the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, the dollar almost inevitably rises. The higher the interest rates are in the United States, the higher the dollar goes. Because people around the world want to get the interest that's being paid here rather than the very, very low interest that's being paid somewhere else. So they buy dollars to deposit them in American banks or buy U.S. Treasury securities. And when you, and when you buy a dollar, interest. say with a euro, you're selling the euro to buy the dollar. Mm -hmm. It's a right. trade. So that causes the, the euro to be less valuable if a lot of people are trying to trade them for dollars. Right. It causes and the dollar to be more valuable. Which is why the euro is just barely above one dollar right now. You can, as a matter of fact, there's a prediction that, and I don't know whether it's accurate or not. I just report that the predictions have been made that the by the end of the year the uh, euro will be one dollar, which will be convenient because I'm going to Europe at the end of the year. So I'm, I, I you could say that I set that up, but anyway, yeah, used to, I remember nice. when it was a dollar forty and a dollar twenty five, and it's anyway. So that's it's what a, it's a dollar seven now. The dollar seven this moment, mm -hmm. yeah. which means you pay about a dollar ten for it if you actually yeah. do the transaction conversion. fees. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're on the big foreign exchange market and you're buying in bulk, right? In which case it still doesn't trade a few at $1. dollars per purchase. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. So that's, I think well, it's funny. It's kind of like when you put a price on something at the store and you've got a sales tax on it. That's the way most foreign exchange works. You have a price that you expect to pay, but then there's the exchange um, fee that goes on top of it. One of, the, one of the things that I wanted to discuss has to do, and I'm trying to find the article that I had set up. Um, here we go. Um, has to do with uh, confidence directly. Why we just had a GDP report that blew the socks out of most people's off of most people's expectations. It was just phenomenally good, followed by a productivity report that was off the charts good. What does that mean? That means the economy is growing, but how well we are doing things in the economy is growing faster than the economy. So productivity is up what was it? Four point seven percent. The economy yep. GDP is up four point nine. Well, it is up. No, no, no. It's not up four point seven percent. It's the third quarter growth in right. productivity annualized. Yes, annualized. In other words, the, the, it's growing at an annualized rate of four point percent. It grew at an annualized rate of four point seven percent in the third quarter. Yes, 
and the economy grew at an annualized rate of 4.9% in the third quarter. Those are phenomenal numbers, numbers that you see generally at the beginning or during huge booms in the economy, just a massive expansion going on. And yet people are grumpy, uh, big time grumpy. And when we talk about confidence, um, that's one of the indicators that we use for leading economic indicators is to talk about the confidence of purchasers. I'm trying to find this article still because it has this. There it is. There it is. Okay. Um, nope, that's not it. It's the level of confidence that we had in 2019. If we put that at a zero mark on a graph, that's this is a, we're measuring from that. Well, something major happened in 2020. We all were around for it. The pandemic hit. Consumer confidence dropped massively during the first three or four months of the pandemic. Big drop, massive, and we all know why. But then it stopped and started back up. The first stimulus had hit. The government was doing things to preserve jobs. Unemployment was being paid to people who weren't working at a level that would keep them solvent and able to make their payments. So we didn't see a lot of bank failures. And then there was this sudden shift in attitudes about five months into the pandemic of, we got this. We can do this. Yeah, I'm getting money from the government. This can't last forever. So we see consumer confidence start back up. It didn't get back up to where it was prior to the pandemic. It still was significantly lower. And then it started a slow decline that lasted till now, essentially. I mean, it's come up a bit since the bottom, but it's this like malaise feeling of this is never going to end. And I suspect me saying it right now is triggering, triggering the listener's own feeling. That's exactly what I'm talking about. When we measure this on a big economy scale, it's you can find it in the small scale too by talking to people. When you say, how do you feel about the economy today? you're a lot less likely to say it's great than you would have in exactly the same circumstances prior to the pandemic. So consumer confidence is way, way behind what's where the economy's been. If we look back into the past, you see consumer confidence rising as a market recovers. That didn't happen this time. In fact, Consumer confidence was dropping all through the boom in the market and in crypto and everywhere else in in the 2021 frame. So the way we feel about things has changed. It isn't different this time. It's just this time is different, if that makes sense. This time hasn't occurred in any of our living memories. But if we go back to the pandemic of the early 1920s, We see the same sort of behavior, people being more afraid about the economy, but doing things that appear to be fearless in the economy, like increasing their spending. And that's something you and I have talked about over the last several years, is that we see the consumer confidence dropping on surveys, and yet we see consumer spending going up. At the same time that confidence is dropping, we've got to figure out another way of measuring confidence than we used to do. Uh, And this falls squarely on the shoulders of behavioral finance, behavioral economics. 
a new survey for behavior, for confidence needs to be developed because the questions that we used to ask are getting different answers today than they used to. Yes, people feel bad about the economy, particularly if you don't frame it to say you've got more money in the bank today than you did in 2019. You're making more money. And this is on average, on aggregate. Pay has gone up faster than inflation during the pandemic. So is hay. So is hay. Uh, inflation and hay don't go together well. If you, It just blows it away when you try to inflate right. it. I've tried this. It's straws are everywhere. Uh, so the, the key here is that when presented with a framing, do you have more in the bank today than you did four years ago? Do you, uh, is your income higher today than it was four years ago? That gets a different response because believe it or not, these surveys often lead with a bunch of questions about what you experience in the store. Like, how do you feel when you're looking at prices in the store? Well, those prices are all higher. They feel horrible. Well, how is it that you have more money in the bank today if all the prices went up fast so fast? Well, I got a raise and I earned it. It isn't, this isn't based on the economy. It's based on my own work. Well, that's what the economy is. It's based on all of our work. And guess what? We've been doing a phenomenal job. 4.7%, even just on a quarter annualized. That's a rate that you would see in a country where you're taking workers out of agriculture with hand tools and putting them in a factory. That means that the technology that we're using to get that kind of productivity increase is so ubiquitous that we're not even commenting about it anymore. But I bet the systems that you're using to do the things that you're doing at work are different than they used to be. And no matter what it is, if it's different, you're going to have complaints about it. Don't get me wrong on that. Most people don't go, well, I love this new system. It's the best thing that's ever happened. you got all these warts and pimples that come with it. But if the overall is an improvement, and it is, we can measure it in the economy. We can talk to individuals, and the vast majority of them have experienced this. Have you gotten a raise over the last four years? Most likely, yes. But the most common response I get to that when I'm discussing it, but I earned that. That's not based on the economy. That was based on me. And I always have to come back to that's what the economy is. That's why our economy is so much better than elsewhere. As bad as we think that the younger generation is always, and this is every generation and thinks this about the next generation. They have got no work, work ethic. In my day, we used to fill in the blank. The United States work ethic is phenomenal. Our ability to learn the new systems to make our productivity faster is better than anywhere else on the planet. They are not in Europe adjusting to new systems anywhere near as quickly as we are, as hard as it is. And if you're in a job that's just changed all of its software in the recent past, you know it's hard to shift. You've been doing it the same way for a long time, but once you get good at doing it the new way, it's usually a lot better than the old way. You just have all of these pains that work up. It's much more frustrating to learn. That has a direct impact on our confidence. When you're learning something, you are often wrong. That's important. It's an important part of learning because there's studies on this. If you lose a bet about who won a Super Bowl or um, how quickly gold rose from one year to another or whatever, you're more likely to remember the correct answer to that bet a year later than the person who won the bet. 
Did you follow that? Losing makes you remember it better, but it doesn't feel good. That's why it makes you remember it better. So our consumer confidence right now is getting pummeled because we're learning new stuff and it hurts to learn new stuff until you get good at it and then you don't want to learn the next thing. We all have that. And that's wrapped into what we're seeing in consumer confidence. Consumer confidence is so much lower than it was pre-2019. And we're spending so much more than we were as a people, which means that we're confident enough in the economy because we think the economy may be bad, but I earned my raise, so I'm not going to get laid off. And that's something that you should take in all of these readings is that when the economy's confidence is bad, but we're growing and we're spending more, it's because individually we might be worried about the economy, but not so much about ourselves. You're worried about the other people not working as hard as you are. Uh, And if you would like to talk to us off the air, I know this is weird. We've been contrarian for the last year on this and and more about not thinking we're going to have a recession in 2023. We're almost through the year. I don't think we're going to have a recession. What do you think? No, it's not uh, going to happen. We were right. <laughs> if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we do give investment advice and uh, fiduciary portfolio management. Uh, if you uh, So you can call it locally at 254-947-1111. Or 800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can uh, sign up for our newsletter or read our newsletter going back a long time. It comes back, it comes out every Friday. It's fantastic. Listen to our radio programs. Send us a uh, uh, contact through the contact form or jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach. <laughs>